from strong foundations, bold actions, and clear principles. My path continues to grow. I reach new heights as I learn and improve. Evolution, triumph, and discovery are the rewards of my ongoing commitment to witchhood. From Kellyanne Maddox, Rebel Witch, carve the craft that's yours alone. It's now the end of season two and we are ready for the next level. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new Witchy Beer fan. I'm known as Asteria in Witchy Circles. I'm a photographer by day and start obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often both at once. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki Shinomiya in Utapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of otaku references. I'm a Capricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon and Scorpio Rising, probably a Lyran Star Seed, a Tarot Lover and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self-love that Cosmic Witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business and magic that blend the practical with the woo. I bring you all-out history geek solo episodes and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring more enchantment into our lives. Ready to live life limitless? Then let's dive into today's episode. It's actually a coincidence that for the second time I have opened the episode with a quote from a book that I've been reading lately, which reminds me I have been building a list of my recommendations on bookshop.org for which I am an affiliate. If you are looking to buy new witchy books, please consider supporting an independent bookstore using that platform so that your purchase will include a small donation at no extra cost to you towards my costs running this podcast. I also have a tip jar on Red Circle. If you appreciate this content and would like to buy me a virtual coffee or something as a thank you. I do this podcast for my own enjoyment and it's not a source of income for me. Although it does mean the world to me if you give me a 5 star rating and review on Apple or Spotify so that the algorithm picks it up and present it to more witches and people who would enjoy it and also please share it with anyone you think would like it. Anyway, today's topic is the asteroids in astrology. I have a couple of questions to run through from you guys and then I'll also introduce the topic for the next season since this time I'm running two back to back. 
so I can take a holiday later in the summer. And of course, my favorite part, which is the collective tarot reading and forecast for the week. And I can't believe it's the 25th of May to the 1st of June week. And this is the 20th episode of this podcast. And last Friday, it was my sixth month publishing Witchy Musings. If you haven't checked it out, please do. It's over on Substack. And this month, I shared one of the funniest moments in anime in recent years. It's really hilarious. (laughs) Anyway, the asteroids are a topic in modern astrology since they have been discovered in the 19th century. They have started to be used in astrology in the 70s and were popularized by the 1986 book by George Demetra and Douglas Bloch titled Asteroid Goddesses, the mythology, psychology and astrology of the re-emerging feminine. I have not managed to get the book itself at this time, so the information is mostly collected from other astrology sources as well as books on Greek mythology, going all the way back to my high school textbooks for random facts that I somehow still remember. I mentioned Ceres in the Goddesses episode as the Roman name for Demeter the goddess of agriculture, who is the mother of Persephone. Through to the easy correspondences between the name given to things and their role in astrology, their significance is that of the mother goddess. According to lovetoknow.com, the domain is in fact quite extensive. I quote, In astrology, Ceres represents the natural world, the rhythms of the seasons, womanhood and fertility, parenting and reproduction, fostering and adopting. Her scenes are unconditional love, relationships between parents and children, and all the issues of devotion, attachment, separation, sacrifice, loss and grief. She is also associated with issues of self-worth, absence of a father, incest, rape, custody issues, loss and reclamation. She governs food, money, physical touch, withdrawal of support and work stoppages. As astrologist Earth mother, service is about your relationship with the physical world. Think Empress or Queen of Pentacles energy. The specific house and sign placement will inform you of the more practical ways in which you can be nurtured while emotions remain the domain of the moon. For example, a habit in Pisces, which is a water sign, and as such emotional support still remains the biggest theme when it comes to the maternal, and I do parent my inner child by embodying Queen of Cups energy a lot. Also mentioned back in the Goddesses episode was Pallas. As Athena was goddess of the intellect and philosophy, but also strategy at war and whatnot. 
we can easily see how palace came to signify creativity, art, strategy, and wisdom. Also, according to WeMoon.WS, she brings to the fourth the father-daughter issues and points to difficulties in linking head, heart, and womb. Ironically, after mentioning in the Gemini newsletter that I don't have air placements, now that I'm looking through my notes on Pallas, she is in Aquarius for me. So technically, I do have one. But I don't really count it, and I'll circle back to it later. Next, we have Juno, the long-suffering wife of the infamous cheater Jupiter, that is Zeus in the Greek pantheon. She is, of course, seen as the asteroid to do with marital affairs. She also represents relationship dynamics more broadly, especially involving infidelity and other hard themes. Another goddess turned asteroid is Vesta, the virgin goddess of the earth, home and family, whose perpetual flame burned in the Forum Romanum in, well, Rome. Her cult was one of the most important in the city and the hardest to eradicate after the advent of Christianity. Her priestesses held really high status in Roman society. I think it's really cool. But anyway, in astrology, she maintains the themes of being whole unto herself representing the parts of our lives that are most intimate to us. Not so much in a set sense, although mine is in Scorpio. It's about these things that we keep, especially for ourselves, um, quote-unquote, holy ground. Then we have three more asteroids plus Chiron, which is most commonly used and I already talked about in season one, but I'll refresh our memories. Chiron is the wounded healer in mythology and as such represents our core wound and is a helpful placement for shadow work. Then we have Sappho, named after the poetess, who is associated with homoeroticism, although it's up for debate whether she was actually same-sex attracted. Personal take, given that sources of a time painter as someone who liked a phallus, or in fact many, and then later ones make her like women, is that perhaps she liked both. Anyway, in astrology she does indeed represent same-sex attraction, but not only that. She is also where we find a personal aesthetic, the desire to bond deeply with others, education of females in the fine arts, poetic ability, and romantic and artistic sensitivity. The jokes about this placement in my chart write themselves in Diabolic Lovers references. And I'm sorry, I make no apology for Marichthyr obsession. The other two main asteroids are Eros and Psyche, who were lovers in Apuleius' Metamorphosis. I'm not sure whether it's a retelling of a myth of it or his own creation, but this story is beautiful. Well, if you have suffering Scorpio in the 12th house and live for tragic stories and angst. If you had not guessed it already, which I guess 
rested on being familiar with the franchise. But really, I love it so much. Highly recommend. In astrology, they have been interpreted in various ways. My favorite, David Odyssey, goes as far as practically implying that they're like a window on the kings of our souls. And that's not a bad view to look at it. But Eris has been an asteroid of Mars, which is the planet divine masculine, and such also covers sexual energy and the the same as creative energy in a safe for work sense. So we have all of our desires represented here. He answers the question, what makes us excited? And then Psyche instead is our soul. She's seen as representing our life journey and is interpreted in light of the relationship to Eros. At the end of the story, she comes to understand herself. And for women in particular, the connection is quite important since we live in a society that has affected our ability to get to know ourselves through our own desires. Whether or not we have the masochistic ones that David Odyssey implied when he wrote for Nylon that psyche makes you consider who or what you're willing to take a great leap for or when you've been beguiled. But another way to look at psyche in the area of your life where trials and tribulations may come to you, but you will overcome and achieve immortality in the end. And it's probably the most fascinating asteroid for me. There are nine more asteroids and dwarfs planets, although they are not very well known since they are all recent additions to the fold and also they are quite repetitive. Some of them are a good one to look into if you're interested in going deeper in the shadow side of things though. We have Eris, named after the Greek goddess of strife and discord, who was a personification of the dark side of being human. She is another placement that shows us how and where in life we express our rebellious side, the first one being Lilith. Then we have Pholus, which represents unexpected and extreme situations in which we feel unable to cope and which force us to outgrow old patterns. He was another centaur in mythology who died because of his curiosity, like that cat idiom which really could be curiosity killed the centaur. As the myth goes, he was holding a poisoned arrow belonging to Heracles, musing about how a thing so tiny could kill a centaur, and accidentally wounded himself, dying of the poison. The patron saint of hairheads, if you ask me. And it can also be seen as areas where we have a gift for experimentation or learning through trial and error. Hopefully that doesn't result in your death. Next we find Sedna, which represents isolation and inaccessibility, separation, and she is seen some, as someone like extremely protective of her interests, or someone irresponsible and unwilling to grab, depending on who you ask. A bit like me, if you ask my friends or you ask my mother. She's named after the goddess of the sea and marine animals in Inuit mythology, 
and also is a goddess of the underworld. There are several myths with her, all which seem to have in common a level of stubbornness in subverting gendered expectations that is inspirational. Because she takes 11,400 years to complete a turn around the sun, everyone alive today is either Aries or Taurus, and she's entering Gemini in June, so the new babies will have that sign. Unless you were born before 1965, in which case I am extremely flattered that you listen to the musings of a millennial, you'll be a Taurus sender, and therefore have a lot of comfort that my parents and their cardinal fire attitudes don't seem to understand. If you want to walk with Senna, look into the specific degree and the house in which she falls. I don't actually know how I feel about degree theory at this point in time, but there is much else to walk with when you have generational planets. For the light walkers among us, Chariclaw is an awesome choice to look into to see what areas of our lives could do with more grace, healing and compassion. She is seen in some myths as Chiron's wife and as such has been interpreted in relation to him as another facet of the divine feminine and masculine. Where he heals the body, she heals the soul. We have a return as 62 to 63 years of age, which means the square and opposition at 16 and 17 and 31 32 respectively. Yes, I know when I need to pay for therapy next. Then we have four asteroids set to represent our relationship to nature. The first, Hameha, named after the Hawaiian goddess of fertility and childbirth in that's basically what she covers. While that may sound like the asteroid only represents people who bear children, it can be seen to inform the way we relate to our divine or cosmic mother, nature herself, and by that extension, life. Makemake is named after a Polynesian god of fertility and is seen more specifically to represent a relationship to the environment and protecting it. It is also considered a good placement to keep an eye on for manifestation, as its transits would heighten our ability to bring things into the material reality. And this is considered true especially if transiting the Sun, Moon, Mercury or Venus. And a similar theme is seen with Cure, named after the creation force of the Nothing of American Tongva tribe, and I'm so sorry if I butchered the names, I did my best, I actually looked them up and seen how they were actually pronounced. Finally, Varuna from Indian mythology brings us the Wheel of Fortune energy of natural law. I've also seen takes that it represents fame, and I had to laugh so hard because I have looked at the ephemeris for it and it goes without saying I have it in Gemini, so my eighth house. And I'm here on the internet talking about witchcraft to a significant group of humans that does not include my mother. Like, what are you actually thinking as lagging her off all the time when she's actually listening to it? Never mind. Anyway, 
Back in Greek mythology, we find a last asteroid, Hygieia, representing a relationship to health, cleanliness, and hygiene. That's where the name comes from, since she was the goddess governing it. Specifically, this is an area of the birth chart where you could look if you wanted to get into preventative care when it comes to a holistic view of wellness. So, there are some calculators to find out your signs and placement for these for free, or you can read the ephemeris, which are just lists of coordinates used to navigate the sky, and then go back to your birth chart and draw them based on the degree that they gave you. Either way, you should be able to find the information related to your placements so you can use them at your leisure. Now, for the season finale hot take that people come to expect of me, I don't really use the asteroids a lot because I find that their themes are already accounted for in the main planets. But I like to know where they are because it can give me an indication of what may be a really key aspect of my life by the sheer number of placements and well the, the archetypes are really good. In spite of walking mostly with the Greek or Roman pantheon I like that they bring more mythologies to the forefront of our minds too. However aside from using hygiene to push my own recovering catholic agenda or self-care I tend to stick to the more established one, simply because they move faster, so they seem more relevant. And they also come closely attached to the main planets, so I see them as giving a bit of a flavour to them. Like, for example, I have Mars in Aries in the 5th South, which is a running joke about how if I'm ever having a kid, it's going to be Ayato Sakamaki. And yes, it will be expected to say Chichinashi as his first word. Anyway, that means I also eros in Aries. Now, Mars's themes are more broadly action and energy and creativity in the broader sense. Sets becomes a part of it because of the broader understanding of the life force and all that. And that's a bit of a cultural assumption, even though to an extent there is a biological link and maybe that's a topic I'll look into next season. Anyway, you could walk with Mars and never touch sets once. But Eros is specifically about carnal desire. It was one of four types of love in Greek philosophy, and it's the one we most commonly associate with romance, although arguably successful couples have at least three of them, all four if there's a BDSM dynamic. So Eros takes Mars energy and focuses it on one area. And if that area is not one you want to explore, you can just not look at Eros. I guess I don't think they are useless to know about, but it's perfectly valid if you think that they are too much information and is getting to be a bit of a joke, how every time a new celestial body is found, there will be an astrologer coming up with a meaning. Nessie is fully aware that I geek out with every theory from degrees to decans to honestly give me three years and I'll have invented something myself. I mostly wanted to talk about the asteroids because, as I mentioned in the Goddesses episode, a lot of the archetypes in astrology are male archetypes, even though there are many people who think of Saturn as the crone and a female archetype, despite the fact in the original myth it's a man. But you do you. 
I know people who consider themselves Christians but refer to a deity self-presenting as male except as the Holy Spirit, which is female in the Hebrew, as a goddess. So why should witches rely too closely on an old religion that may be revived by modern pagans but has no real mechanism of enforcing any dogma? So if you, like me, do tend to stick to traditions as they are handed down to you, then I wanted to bring to the table the idea that expanding the placements we look at can help us explore the feminine more deeply. Now, the questions. The first question is not even about astrology, although I would argue it is, because all of magic boils down to the same archetypes in different ways, and it's about thinking and feeling and what difference is there, if any, between self-exploration and bypassing our feelings. So, so I think one issue with this is that we have been conditioned to live in our heads a lot. Our society prizes logical thinking and action and discounts anything that is seen as sentimental. This creates a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of feelings. One thing I learned in therapy has been that feelings are made up of two things, our emotions and our thoughts. Feelings are, as per the dictionary definition, something that you feel through the mind or through the senses, which is kind of unhelpful because then you have to define feel. Something you experience. We use the word feeling to talk about ideas and, and opinions too. And I'm the biggest culprit because I use that language myself. So it's easy to see why people would equate feelings with emotions. And then it gets confusing because the suit of cups is more specifically about emotions. My apologies if I have ever been unclear about that, which I'm fairly sure I must have, but emotions are a complex experience of consciousness, bodily sensation and behaviour that reflects the personal significance of a thing. There's a reciprocity because the brain works in a constant exchange between its parts. And emotions are what we experience in the body. We tense up if we are angry or scared, cry if we are sad, or I cry for pretty much everything. We feel flushed cheeks if imbalanced, and so on. And the moment we become aware of that is when we are thinking our feelings and moving to swords. Now, this is not a bad thing. Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, known as CBT, relies on our ability to think our feelings and put them into perspective. Are we reacting to something quote-unquote real or to a false narrative that we can challenge? While our feelings are always valid, it's possible that they are unnecessary because they are born of a situation that isn't actually there. So energy is about being able to discern this and master our actions in response to our feelings by knowing what feelings serve our best interest. 
what's not helpful in terms of thinking our feelings it's when we dismiss them and invalidate them through an attempt to make logic out of them. Let me give you an example from the thought record which is from Judy Beck. Let's take the example of a pitch that did not go well. That's the trigger event. The next step is the thoughts that it triggered. The healthy approach is just to sit with the disappointment that someone else was a better fit and metabolize the feeling so you can feel lighter and keep trying. Then you have the option where you allow yourself to feel the disappointment but also engage in dysfunctional thinking and jump into making up a story about how your worthiness and how you shouldn't even be trying because clearly you aren't good enough and you're delusional and too full of yourself for thinking you could ever make it. You shouldn't feel disappointed because it's your fault for having expectation. And the key word there is shouldn't. When that word comes up, you know you aren't being self-aware and that using swords in a negative way instead of the positive one that is the good way of handling your emotions through thinking. Because when you're using these shoulds, you are trying to bypass your emotions and then move on without processing them. Thankfully, you get a second chance at mastering your thoughts there, as you can challenge the narrative and allow yourself to feel the disappointment. And it's possible that your actual bodily feelings of the emotions is quite underwhelming compared to others who have really intense emotion. But it does not mean that you aren't feeling them. The key here is whether the thinking is meant to process the emotion and explore why you feel the way you feel and what you can do about it. Or shut it down by rationalizing it as something that you shouldn't be feeling. And toxic positivity is the other side of the same coin because it skips a step in interrogating the narrative, in a rush to get away from the negative emotion. It doesn't matter if you cut your feelings off or force them to change to better emotion. That's what it means to bypass them. Thinking is not equivalent to bypassing. The second question is to me rather similar, and that may be my own bias, because it's about energetics from a SAS perspective. If you're not familiar with the acronym, it stands for Skeptical, Agnostic and Science Seeking Witchcraft. You may have heard of placebo magic, which falls under this umbrella. So, I'm more on the agnostic end of the spectrum in the sense that I don't believe in the supernatural, but I accept that there are things that we cannot explain. I just believe that they must have a natural explanation. Them open to the possibility that we just don't know yet because we don't have the science to explain them correctly. So I don't hold strictly to the idea everything is just placebo, even though it's actually not adjust, but you know what I mean. We and like the idea that we can only use magic for psychology or self care. But I guess the main reason why I don't completely discount the possibility that there is more to life 
is that it seems a bit arrogant to me to assume we've got it all figured out and that the explanation we have now are correct. Even the placebo effect may be something that in the future we're going to understand in a different way. Having said that, I don't rely on the truth of those matters for my magic. And I'd be perfectly satisfied that I have had a successful spell if it changes me and no one else. This long preamble to say that this explanation may not cut it with the more science-seeking end of the spectrum, because they would hold a little more tightly to the current neuroscience. But if you're interested, I would invite you to check out the guest interviews on the podcast of the Monroe Institute and Spanning on Consciousness. I'm gonna drop it in the show notes. For me, I'm okay with the more traditional views of energetics because I recognize that I'm quite sensitive to them and also a lot of traditional Catholicism is about it. So I've been exposed to it for long enough to be normalized. It's not even about big things like walking into a space and feeling it off and it turns out someone died there 50 years ago or something. Although I've had experiences like that. You can walk with energetics on a much smaller level. I don't like being prescriptive about things to do, so I'm going to share with you the things I do on a day-to-day level, bearing in mind that it's not all the possibilities and it's just because I hope they'll be enough to explain what energy manipulation is all about so that you can come up with your own ideas if these don't vibe with you. So there are two ways in which I walk with energy. The big overarching psychological walk and the small day-to-day things. On the big psychological level, my main focus is on growing my sense of self-worth. And some of the smaller actions are linked to that too. For example, I do a lot of traditional energy healing like Reiki and without getting into the merit of whether they work or it's placebo. The main reason why I do it is that my family and my mother in particular has always been extremely judgmental of people who quote unquote waste money on things that aren't essential. So it's a radical act for me to be like, I deserve to spend 80 quid for the privilege of someone putting on some soothing music I could get for free on Spotify so they can lay their hands on me. It could be a massage, but because there is a tangible result from those, it's not exactly the same. So even if there wasn't any other result from those sessions, or even if the results were to be placebo, I am manipulating my energy just by showing up with the intention of taking care of myself like I'm going to And honestly, given the way she eats, I dare say I take better care than she does, but that's a whole other story. Shadow walk and meditation to reprogram my subconscious are also ways in which I manipulate energy on this larger scale and set magic, although that could also fall under spell casting and changing the energy on the micro level. And I guess if the language of energetics doesn't sit well with you, you can still see it as shifting mindset or stuff like that anyway. But I think there's enough evidence that we respond to people in our animal bodies, and that's energy. We pick up on the vibe of those around us, 
and a good mood and a mad mood are equally contagious. So magic becomes about being intentional with all of it and how you move around the world and doing things in order to control what you put out and how you are perceived as a result. Which brings me to the smaller actions, which tend to be more around glamour magic. So I have clothes to project specific archetypes and I choose specific items or colors to embody whatever serves me best on any given occasion. Or how I select music to change my emotional state. I also have a fan fiction that I wrote as a love letter to myself that I read when I don't feel very loving towards myself and of course the more traditional spare crafting that always comes out when I have a specific focus to direct the energy towards. Now talking about controlling how others perceive us can be seen as manipulative but I think to an extent we are all manipulative all the time and it's only seen as a negative because it is a shadow that has been created. To me, the only case in which manipulation should be seen as a negative is when it's about lies. Having a small ritual to yourself because you're working in a customer-focused job and you want to create a welcoming atmosphere for your customers and your colleagues, and so you strive to put on a genuine smile and leave behind your other stresses for the duration of your shift, is no different from putting on lo-fi before a study session so your brain can focus. You don't need to have all of yourself on your conscious mind 24-7 to be genuine. Like, diamonds are multifaceted, so I, and so are you. You don't have to shine from every angle to be yourself in an authentic way. Things would be different if you were trying to project someone you are not so that you are believed to be this persona and can obtain something through it. And even then, there are probably certain grey areas and everyone has their own morals. I wouldn't blame people pleasers who look nice from the outside but are coming from an extremely selfish place of needing recognition to feel their self-worth. In the same way that I would blame a dating scammer love-bombing someone to get money out of them. But the action they are performing is the same, and they are both on the negative end of manipulating how we are perceived. So, personally, when I look at energetics through this lens, I see it as pretty inescapable rather than something new. We all double in energetics, just most of us do so on autopilot, and witches try to do it so intentionally. And there isn't a lot that is woo about it unless you believe you can affect events that you are not directly involved in, which is something I have seen at play both among witches and in traditional religion. And if the lot that is woo, too, yeah, but you can totally walk with energetics in a sus context. And do let me know if this was enough of an explanation, or I can always circle back to it in a future episode. So now, for the rest of the things that I do to work with energetics, and perhaps the more will end of it, since we are talking about the energies of the cosmos. We are now in Gemini season, starting with the moon in Leo for a bit of Orizama energy, or if you're like me, the time of the month when you consider if you should have a sugar daddy for 48 showers. There are only three significant aspects this week. 
Venus square Chiron, which is what was exact at one twenty nine a.m. Central European time this morning. Then tomorrow, the twenty sixth, Venus style Uranus at nine thirty six a.m. And that's Venus in Cancer at twenty degrees, with Uranus remaining in Taurus as one of a handful of placements that are still there from the recent stellium. I feel like the question on caps and swords worked out quite timely because this is a good transit to explore what nurtures us and indulge in it no matter how unusual it is. Fill that cup without judgment. Then on the 28th we have the Sun in a square with Saturn at 12.45pm CET. That's a more challenging aspect since we are trying to square the circle of Cups and Swords energy with Saturn in Pisces and the Sun in Gemini. It's happening at 6 degrees if you are into that, which is a degree associated with Virgo for the extra chaos. If there is a transit that screams stagnation, this is it. Which brings me to our card for this week, which is the Sun. The Sun is a major arcana and the third to last card of the cycle. It represents a scene of happiness and contentment. In my deck, it's a really creepy looking Sun, like a Venetian carnival mask, shining over two children in a field holding a flower crown between themselves and the girl is holding a flower in her other hand. To me it looks like two children role playing a wedding but also they are looking in the direction of the reader, their expression not the happiest looking in the deck, especially not the girl who is blonde and looks like me when annoyed. It's almost like an adult interrupted at the best time in the scene to call them for dinner. And I guess since the sun is not the final card, the vibe fits. It's a card about celebrating the goodness of life while we still remain conscious of the rest of the journey. And still it's a warning of sorts about not becoming so caught up in our celebration that we become upset when reality comes knocking. To me, it represents the idea of celebrating our wins without ego, without attaching narratives about our worth that will crumble as soon as the fantasy is over. Speaking mostly to myself here, but this could be a good time to examine the ways in which we create a stagnation for ourselves under the guise of contentment. When there is more joy to be had, if we move forward, and we grow and one day, instead of playing as bride and groom, we will be the bride and groom at a real celebration. Metaphorically, of course, I'm not suggesting we go out to try and find a partner, even if I'm a year away from my Jupiter return in the seventh house, so the stars have aligned for that for me. Finally, just a little introduction to season three. We are heading towards the Lion's Gate portal, so it seemed like a good time to look at manifestation. I'm going to look at the signs behind it for those who are still skeptical about the whole thing and take you on a journey through my own manifestation process in real time, sort of. I'm going to look at things I disagree with in the space 
and take you behind the scenes of what manifestation looks like when you don't have the benefit of hindsight that so many people talking about it have. Although I am bringing you a conversation I was honoured to have with one of my witcher role models to kick us off because I wanted to make it balanced. My goal for season 3 is to bring a perspective from the eye of the storm in an honest and vulnerable way, rather than only give myself permission to talk about it if I could prove that I was right and then made it happen. Because everyone else is coming at it from a place of mentoring others and it seems to feel like you're the only person who is failing and taking forever and doing something wrong. And of course, We'll be looking at more meteors and the other exciting star myths of the summer season and all of the witch stuff that I think makes life exciting to live, whether or not you achieve your manifestation goals. Because, hot take here, being excited to live is the true manifestation goal. So I'll see you next week for season 3 and I'll keep then, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who will enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time!